0: John chapter 5, verses 30 through 47. The Lord is speaking here in the middle of his discourse to the Jews, and he says, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. But I received not testimony from man, but these things I say that ye might be saved. He was a burning and shining light, and ye were the excuse me, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, bore witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom ye hath sent him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me, that ye might have life." I receive not honor from men, but I know you, that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. How can ye believe which receive honor one from another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust, for had they believed Moses, for had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. If ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? And all God's people said, "Amen." Amen. Our heavenly Father, again we ask that Thou might pour out Thy Spirit into our hearts, that we might see and hear. From you, even Christ, that we might appreciate and understand his and your characteristics and attributes. So we pray the Lord compass about our hearts, grant us grace, that we might understand what thou hast said here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, This I found to be a little bit difficult of of a section to go through. And I share this caveat again, as I have in the past that um, it's my Trinitarian disclaimer. There is no prophet trying to separate the Godhead. And so that's gonna be key to our appreciation and understanding what the Lord Jesus is teaching here. There's no prophet in separating the Godhead. So um, don't try to do that. Now, as by way of review, you'll recall that this conversation started with the Jews um, persecuting Christ. He's healed an individual. And the fact that he did it on the Sabbath day Um, brought persecution um, to him. In verse 17 of John chapter 5, the Lord said, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Meaning, he works on the Sabbath and I work on the Sabbath. And so, uh, last week while I was making reference to the work that God does with respect to keeping the cosmos going and keeping the internucleic forces of the atom together, keeping everything together, scripture says that by him all things consist, He does this 24-7, and I think we can all appreciate that, particularly, as I said, those that have pets, they have a garden to take care of, you've got children. You understand how that you are 24-7 dealing with taking care of things and making sure everything is going uh, properly. Um, However, what thing I did neglect to mention, which is important because it's going to come up in John chapter 6, verse 29, is that The most uh, important work that God does, which he does all of the time, including on the Sabbath day, is turning the heart of man towards a favorable disposition of God. We know that scripture speaks the truth when it says that the carnal mind is at enmity with God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. God is telling us here that man cannot, of his own will, of his own volition, um, obey God. Man's heart is not inclined naturally towards God. It's inclined the opposite direction. And so the work that we uh, see in Genesis chapter 1, the work that's chronicled for us there, is but a representative and uh, allegorical representation of the work that God does in the darkened heart of man when God's Spirit moves upon that which is without form and void, speaking of the heart, imparting faith to certain men. And this is the work that Jesus sets before his audience when he says in John 6, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. And so of a truth, that's a work that God does every day of the week. He does it on the Sabbath day and does it every day of the week. Now, as you might expect, given the depravity of man set before us here in terms of his ignorance, his infirmity and antagonism towards God, Jesus' statement about working on the Sabbath day um, simply exacerbates the situation um, before him here. In John in five eighteen in verse 18 here, it says, therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him when he spoke of him working as his father works. So not only has he broken the Sabbath here, but he said that God was his father making himself equal with God. The Greek word in there that's translated as his means his own. He has a unique relationship with the Father. So what follows here, Jesus sets before us his divinity, how God is his own Father, which of course he is, having been conceived by the Holy Ghost and proceeding from the Father. He is equal with the Father. And that's what they understood him to say. So we can um, appreciate that, that they did understand, though they understand nothing else about him in terms of what he says, what follows. So this week we are going to talk about um, what I call a fourfold witness here. And here we're going to see a fourfold witness. We're going to hear about the witness of the Father. We're going to hear about the witness of Jesus' works. We're going to hear about the witness of the written word. And then the coin flips, and we're going to speak about a witness against national Israel, a witness against national Israel. So as we continue where we left off last week, I'm going to pick it up in verse 30 of John chapter five, because it's important for us to appreciate what is written there in particular. Jesus says in verse 30, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the father, which hath sent me. Now, last week, we saw that Jesus' statement, I can of mine own self do nothing, is not to be understood as a limitation which Jesus was subject to, but rather one confirming the uniformity of his will with the will of the Father. It is an affirmation of the inseparable nature of the triune Godhead, that they are three persons and yet one, and they indeed all agree as one. Now last week, in the context of Jesus proving himself equal with the Father in verse 18, Jesus made several statements. When Jesus spoke of his Father in verse 17, the Jews, as I said, understood him to say that it was his own Father, that it was a unique relationship that he had with them. In response to their correct understanding of his reference to the Father, however blasphemous they thought it was, He then sets before them his equality with the Father, that he is equal in power, equal in authority, equal in honor, equal in knowledge, and that his will is in common or equal with the Father. Now, given these theological truths, Jesus, as a witness of himself, is ever united as a witness with the Father. as a witness cannot witness independently of the Father. Now in the next several verses that follow there are two different Greek words that are translated as the word witness and that's what makes it I think kinda difficult for us to understand and appreciate what is written here. The first word speaks of the person or witness the individual or person that might testify in a court of law we call that person a witness. What the witness says, the words that they speak, we might call their testimony or witness. We also use that same word witness. It is from the context that we might understand the meaning of this word witness, whether it's referring to a particular person or what the person says. So in verse 31 of John chapter 5, we read, If I bear witness of myself, in other words, if I'm the individual My witness, or testimony, that's a different Greek word, is not true. So he's using that word, the word is witness in English, but it's two different Greek words. One's referring to him as a person, and the other is referring to what he is speaking. Now, you need to appreciate the first word in that sentence. It's the word if. This is a hypothetical statement. It's a hypothetical statement, and I want us to contrast that with what is written in John chapter eight, verse 14. In John chapter eight, verse 14, we read, Jesus answered and said unto them, though I bear record of myself, though I'm a witness, though I'm a person, yet my record or witness, the things I speak is true. For I know whence I came and whither I go, but ye cannot tell whence I come or whither I go. Now, this is not a hypothetical statement. This is a statement of fact. And both of these verses must be understood in their context. In the context of them is the same. Both of them are said in respect to Jesus' unity with the Father. The veracity or truth of Jesus' record, or witness of himself in John 14 is in this context. It is to be understood respecting his unity with the Father. Down in John Chapter 8, verse 16, just two verses uh, further down, Jesus says in the context of judgment and testimony or witness that his, quote, witness is true, for I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. Jesus and his Father are ever one, yet two, and therefore constitute one common, yet two witnesses, And so in the next verse, two verses, Jesus expresses the general principle from the Mosaic law when he says, It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that beareth witness of myself and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Therefore, consistent with the Mosaic law, his testimony is true because it's from two people. Now." In John chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus is speaking in the context of equality and, more importantly for our understanding, of the unity with God the Father. Here Jesus is saying, again, hypothetically, if I, by myself, that is to say, independent of the Father, testify of myself, that testimony is not true. It would be an expression or testimony independent of the Godhead which, of course, can never be. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. He is the expressed image of his person. In him dwelleth bodily all the fullness of the Godhead. He is ever one with the Father. Now, we know from the scriptures that God cannot lie. It should therefore be obvious to us that whatever Jesus has to say about himself is true because he is God and he himself is the truth. So our understanding of what is said here in verse 31 of John chapter 5 is fundamentally defined by the preceding verse above it where Jesus says, I can of mine own self do nothing. That would include testifying as his own witness irrespective of the subject. He does nothing independent of the Father. Their witness is ever one and the same and they are ever united. In verse 32 of John chapter 5 he says there is another that beareth witness of me and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Now notice that he's not speaking particularly of the Father here as though he's speaking of one specific individual as though there was another one independent witness. However from the context the intimation of it is that he's speaking of God here which would include the Father and the Spirit both of which are one with the son. Consistent with this, we see in the chronology of the gospels that God has witnessed before of Christ. In Matthew chapter 3 verse 16 and 17, on the occasion when Jesus is baptized, I'll read that. Matthew 3:16 and 17, it says, and Jesus when he was baptized went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here we see both God the Father and God the Holy Spirit witnessing and testifying about Christ himself, that he is the Son of God. You can see this also again at the Mount of Transfiguration. At the Mount of Transfiguration, we see here, I'll read that in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. While he that would be Peter yet spake, behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold a voice out of the cloud which said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. Now here the bright cloud represents the Holy Spirit. And you can appreciate that when you consider the dedication of Solomon's temple, when, uh, when they were de- dedicating it and Solomon was praying over it, that the spirit of God filled the temple, um, so much so that I think they had to, had to get out of the temple. There was uh, The Holy Ghost um, was there in the form of of a cloud. So here we have also at the Mount of Transfiguration two bearing witnesses of Christ Jesus. But as always, none of these witnesses is ever independent of Christ himself. So the Father's witness is united with Christ and the Holy Ghost. Christ is united with the Father and the Holy Ghost. And the Father's is united with Christ and the Holy Ghost. All of these bear common witness. Now later we're going to learn in the Gospel of John in particular when he talks about the comforter he will send and the comforter shall convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit bears witness also that Christ is God manifest in flesh. Now this witness is in the world and most importantly, as our deacon read to us this morning about how we might cry, Abba, Father, that witness is in our hearts. The Holy Ghost is in our hearts, uh, hearts of the believer I'll read that from John chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. First John, excuse me. First John 5, 8 through 10. And the Lord says there, And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these are three agree in one. If we receive the witness of man, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself, He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. To have the Spirit of God in you is to have Christ in you. It is to have the Father in you, for they three are one. And that is what is quite remarkable, if not most remarkable, about the regenerated um, Christian, is that God indwells the Christian And there's not any other religion, and I hate to even use the word religion, but there is no other system of understanding or belief about a divine Godhead where they indwell, uh, where he indwells his subjects. And this he does, the Christian. That's indeed why we're called Christians, because we take our name from Christ. As a woman takes the name of her husband, so does the bride of Christ take the name of her husband, which is Christ. We are Christians. Now in verse 33 of John chapter 5, the Lord says, "Ye sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. As a witness united with the Father, Jesus now bears witness about John's witness. Now recall that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, and Scripture says that he was sent by God. Now it is interesting here that Jesus doesn't say that John bear witness of me, but rather he bear witness unto the truth." That's a profound statement. You'll recall that Pilate asked the question when he's interrogating Jesus. He asked the question, what is truth? And Christ himself, Jesus had identified himself as the truth. That's a very interesting question that Pilate would ask the truth. What is truth? Truth is a person. Now, that Jesus says that John bears witness of the truth is indicative that there is objective truth truth. And that's a very significant statement in every age, but I think particularly so in our age this day. I have no doubt that throughout history philosophers have had much to say about this subject, whether it exists at all and how a man might come to know it, whether it comes from within a man or whether it comes to a man from an external source. That is something people have a lot to say about. God tells us that truth Comes by Christ, in John chapter one verse fourteen, we read, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the only as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse seventeen of John chapter one, it says that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So here in John five thirty three, it says, John bear witness. Unto the truth. Jesus, as I said earlier, def- declares himself to be the truth. He says, I am the truth. To know Christ, and I mean that in the intimate sense of the word, is to know the truth. It is to understand where you came from, where you are going, and why you exist. It is to appreciate the temporal reality of the visible world with all its intoxicating, alluring attributes that turn people from God. It is to appreciate the deceptive nature of Satan and the spiritual warfare that colors this present evil world. It is to know the bondage of sin, having been freed from it due the love, mercy, and justice of God. It is to know, as the Lord says in Genesis chapter three, to know good and evil. In short, it is to know God and it is to God that all must give account and that it is with God with whom we shall eternally dwell, with whom the saints shall eternally dwell. Only those that know the truth can know that they are saved and that they will indeed live with God forever. And so our Lord Jesus says in the next verse, verse 34, he says, but I received not testimony from man but these things I say that ye might be saved. Now what the Lord is saying here is that I neither depend upon nor receive the testimony or witness of man. Of a truth, all unregenerated men hate God. The psalmist says that in Psalm 69.4 says that man hated God without a cause. And of a truth, the Lord's going to bring this subject up, say, it five different times throughout the gospel of John alone. That man hates God, man hates Christ, uh, and man hates the, man, the people that God sends. So he hates the Christian because he hates Christ, and he hates Christ because he hates God. And so this is all related here, but the Lord's going to uh, share that with us five times throughout the gospel of John alone. So in verse 33, Jesus is affirming that what John said is truth. Jesus, excuse me, John, you'll recall, witnessed that Jesus was the Lamb of God. And we can appreciate that that as a man in whom the Spirit of God dwelt from his mother's womb, those that heard him, and I put the word heard in quotes, those that heard him heard the true testimony of a man which God had sent and a man in whom God dwells, which thing God did for their salvific benefit in Malachi chapter 4 I'll read verses 6 and 7 here I'll read verse 5 and 6 the Lord speaking of John the Baptist says behold I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and smite the earth with a curse so the Lord is talking to us here about John's ministry that it was for their salvific benefit here His words were that they might be saved. So God sent John as a witness for the benefit of Israel, not for the benefit of Christ. He was to prepare the way for the Lord, which means that he was to prepare the hearts of men, calling them to repentance, that they might turn to Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, as indeed is true for all people. So the gospel is preached, conviction, we pray, would be upon their hearts, and they would see their need for and the exclusivity of the salvation that is offered in Christ. So here Christ again is affirming the veracity of John's testimony. Now speaking of John the Baptist, in verse 35, the Lord says that he was a burning and shining light or lamp. The Lord is using language here to help us appreciate that as a lamp is fueled by oil, by that which is contained within it, so too was John's witness and testimony fueled by the Holy Ghost, which is in him. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says that, quote, No man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. So we have to appreciate that if anybody's testimony of Christ is true, it's because the Holy Ghost our God is in them. So John's witness and testimony under the truth is essentially from God himself working in and through him. And this of course is true for all the saints as the Lord says on the Sermon on the Mount speaking of the subjects of his heavenly kingdom, quote, "Ye are the light of the world." And consistent with what the Lord next says in his verse uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, um, God did not put John under a bushel, but placed him before men and sent men to him that they might hear the gospel. So in like manner, particularly so in these days of global deception, it is incumbent upon we who are the lights of the world to bear witness of the truth that others might be saved. In verse 36 of John, chapter 5, the Lord again speaks of that which bears witness of him, and that is his works. His works bear witness of him. The works as a witness, like the individual, of uh, one that would testify, say that which is greater than that which John said, particularly the works that God the Father hath given him to finish. He specifically makes reference to those Um, John, while pointing to Jesus, said that he, Jesus, would take away the sin of the world. And that is a very great witness or testimony. But it's not nearly so great as the actual accomplishment of that work, which Jesus did when he went to the cross and suffered the wrath of God. That work the Father had given Jesus to finish. And that work he indeed did finish after six hours on the cross, upon which Jesus said, it is finished. After which then he immediately gave up, bowed his head and gave up the ghost. He said, it is finished. And this is just a side note here. Those that look for the restoration of national Israel as the kingdom of God, the restoration of the temple and the setting up again of the temple sacrifice have to ignore this statement. It is finished. It is finished. God finished it. He sent Jesus to accomplish something. He, in fact, accomplishment. It is over. All shadows and types and allegories have given way to the reality of what Christ has accomplished. There could be no greater work given to witness with respect to who Jesus is and the fact that he was sent by the Father and is equal with the Father than him laying down his life for certain men and then taking it up again three days later accomplishing our justification before a righteous and holy God. Back in Genesis chapter one, the Lord had given his purpose statement that he would make man in his image after his likeness. And it is through the cross that that takes place because it is through the cross that after the which, the Holy Ghost is poured out in a broad sense. Although the methodology has never changed of salvation, but in a broad sense after the cross, the Holy Ghost is poured out uh, amongst the nations and people become partakers of the divine nature We have the characteristics, some of the characteristics and attributes of God. We have not yet received our glorified body, but nevertheless, that was the work that the Lord finished. When he was on the cross, he finished that work. Men are then in the image and likeness of God, having received the Holy Ghost and the justification um, consistent with the shed blood of Christ. Now, in verses 37 through 42 in John chapter 5 here, these are essentially an indictment against national Israel. And that indictment is every bit as true today as it was then. And quite frankly, I think it's also true respecting the larger Christian community. And I'll put that word Christian in quotes. And that is this, throughout, though all of the scriptures teach about God and Christ in particular, they never saw him in the scriptures. They never heard God speaking in his holy words. They never saw Christ in the law of the offerings. They never saw Christ in the sacrifices. They never saw him in the law and its ordinances. They never saw Christ in the multitudes of typologies, similitudes, parables, or allegories. Though there are many scriptures which most plainly teach about Christ, they did not see Christ in them. There is nothing allegorical about Psalm 22, Psalm 23, or Isaiah 53. It plainly speaks about Christ. Uh, Daniel's words in Daniel chapter 9 plainly say what the Messiah will accomplish, and it even uh, tells us when he's going to come, when you combine that with what's written um, also in Isaiah. God's word was not in them. They took not the scriptures to heart, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119 verse 11, Lord, I have hid thy word in my heart. They did not do that. If they had done that, if they did have God's word abiding in their heart, Jesus says, they would have believed the one whom the Father sent, which is Jesus. As we know, it says in Psalm 40, verse 7, that, lo, I come in the volume of the book. Speaking of Christ, he is, comes in the entire Bible, and they never saw it. Having not the word of God in them, they would not believe he who is the word of God. And the proof of this is standing right in front of them. Christ is he who comes in the volume of the book and they don't see him as the one about which all of the law, the prophets and the psalm testified of. He is the one whom all of the Bible speaks of. He comes in the volume of the book and he is speaking to him, speaking to them, he is speaking to them and they don't hear him. He who is the source of eternal life, he who is the resurrection and the life is standing right in front of them and they won't come to him that they might have life. They won't reach out and embrace him or the things that he says. They will not honor him. He who is God and never knows what is in the hearts of men, by whom and for whom were all things created that will not honor him. Next couple of verses in verse 43 and 44, Jesus tells us that he comes in his father's name, meaning he comes with his father's authority, and the people will not receive him. Others will come in their own name. They will come by their own authority, and them people will receive and we've certainly seen this in our day. Charismatic people lift themselves up and draw multitudes of people to themselves, and people honor them. People lift them up and follow their teachings. But what of Christ? Scripture says, and this bears itself true in history, he was despised and rejected of men. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He receives no honor from men, Quite the contrary, his name is used as an expletive? Expletive? Expletive. Expletive, Expletive, thank you. His word is used as an expletive and a curse word and a byword. That's the kind of honor he receives. In verse 44, the Lord sets before us a sad truth, and that is that men seek the honor of men and not the honor of God. They do things to lift themselves up before men, seeking honor from men, rather than do that which is pleasing to God. And as such, it is evident that men have a very low view of God. And with such a low view of God, why would they believe what God has to say? Would you believe somebody that you do not esteem? The answer is no, you would not. And so they do not believe what Christ has to say. He he receives no honor from men. In verses 45 and 47, the Lord continues to indict national Israel, those that were the custodians of the Holy Scriptures, as our deacon read for us in Romans chapter 3, verse 2. In John 5:45, he says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. The Bible teaches us that grace and truth came by Christ Jesus, and the law was given by Moses. Jesus is telling these people that they trust in Moses, which is to say they trust in themselves and their perceived ability to keep the law. They judge themselves by their outward performance and are blind to the condition of their hearts. And as the scripture says, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? God knows it. All things were naked and open unto him with whom we have to do. But that condition of the heart is not unique to the Jews. It is common to all men that it is desperately wicked um, and deceitful above all things. Now, one of the reasons I so despise dispensationalism is because that those that hold to dispensationalism lift up the flesh ostensibly in the Jew through the Mosaic law as a means by which men might approach God. They have it in their heads that there was a methodology by which God might be approached and that was through the law, which of course means through the flesh. And when they do that, they undoubtedly harbor some hope within themselves, thinking that if the Jew can do it, so can I. And that way of thinking is death. Jesus says here in verse 46 that it is Moses, meaning the law, that will accuse them before the judgment throne of God. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. When a person stands before the judgment throne of God and the law is accusing them, there is nothing that they can say in their defense. The Lord says here that their mouths are going to be stopped and they will be found guilty before God. By the deeds of the law, by the deeds of the flesh, shall no flesh be justified before God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, I'm just going to tell you what it says here. It says, Most plainly that the letter of the law killeth that which is written and engraved in stones is the letter of the law, and it killeth. The law is a ministration of death and condemnation. So the Jews here are so blind as to the purpose of the law, they have placed their hope in the very institution that will accuse them before God. In the context of John chapter 5, not only will the law convict them of their sin and their transgression of it, but it will condemn them for their rejection of him because Moses wrote of Jesus and if they didn't believe what Moses wrote of Christ they most certainly won't believe the witness of Christ himself who was sent by the father and is ever united with the father as a common witness of his testimony and witness so in summary in this section Jesus speaks of three witnesses for Christ he speaks of the father he speaks of his works the cross in particular, and he speaks of the written word, and then he speaks of the witness that will be against them, and that is the things that are written in the Mosaic law. Of a truth, we could only believe these witnesses if we have the witness of the Holy Spirit within us, which is the gift of God, the Spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father, indicating that we have a loving relationship with the Father. And so once again we have to appreciate that eternal life and fellowship with God rests in the completed works of God in which we rest and trust and that we believe the works of God is, of course, by His grace. Amen.